0: Good morning, City Church. What's the word? How you guys doing? You guys doing all right up top? Y'all doing all right? I see Merrick with the kiddos up there. What's up, y'all? Hey, it's good seeing you guys. Okay. Uh, In the documentary, The Mask You Live In, one question is explored. And I don't know if you guys have seen that documentary. One question is explored. They're exploring the question, what does it mean to be a man? specifically in America. In this documentary, Joe Ehrman, former NFL player, author, and speaker, says, American masculinity is strictly associated with three things, power, economic success, and sexual conquest. These metrics have long been influential in the makeup of manhood. Plato said the measure of a man is what he does with power. Abraham Lincoln said nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. And I think this is what Kanye West had in mind when he said no one man should have all this power. That was a joke. While these metrics have long been influential in the makeup of manhood, they are the pillars of measuring modern American masculinity. Our American masculinity is built on these things. Power, economic success, sexual conquest. For the next three weeks, we'll be in a series entitled Measure of a Man, where we'll be comparing these metrics to the person, teaching, and way of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, ladies, uh, I want to speak to you because I'm sure some of you think, well, what does this have to do with me? I want to speak to you, but first, I want to welcome you guys for being uh, here with us this morning. For those of you who are new, uh, like Jeff said, my name is Sean Little. I'm the community and teaching pastor here. I also want to welcome those of you joining us by podcast or app. All right, back to the Ladies. I think this series will be both insightful and incredibly valuable for you specifically as a way to understand the psyche of a man, the impossible creatures that you've been condemned to cohabitate this earth with. A staple sentiment of women that I've picked up as I do pre-marriage counseling and marriage counseling is that men aren't emotional. Usually what that means is that men aren't capable of accessing emotions other than anger or communicating about them. For married women or women in romantic relationships with men and mothers of boys, I hope that this encourages you in your relationships with your husbands, your boyfriends, and your sons. In fact, I hope this is an encouragement to all women in any kind of relationship with a man, not only romantic, but social, maybe work as well. In addition, uh, we'll be focusing on the measure of a man, but women, I want to encourage you to be thinking, what does the person of Jesus? What does the teaching of Jesus? What does the way of Jesus have to do with my identity as a woman? I want to encourage you in that. So today we'll consider the metric of power, power, as it relates to manhood and masculinity, in the life. Of Jesus. As a framework, I'm going to be asking three questions. So you can track with me based on these three questions. How does Jesus relate to power? That's the first question. How does Jesus use power? That's the sec- second question. And the third question is so what? Okay, before I get to that first question, how does Jesus relate to power, I have one caveat and one clarification. I want to say these things from the beginning. Here's my caveat. You'll hear me repeat this in the coming weeks throughout this series, but from the outset I have an observation that I want to share about Jesus. It's my observation that the actual person of Jesus is primarily thought of in these three ways. It's going to come up on the screen. You can jot it down. This is how I think most people think about Jesus. They think about him suspiciously. They think about him sentimentally. And they think about him sensationally. I'm going to talk about those things a little bit. Jesus is thought of suspiciously. Suspiciously. As in inclined to suspect evil or distrust. While I think it's fair that a man of Jesus' stature and influence who performed miraculous signs and claimed to be God himself is worthy of being suspicious of. I think that is, is practical. I think that makes sense. Suspicion in and of itself is not a reasonable conclusion to come to about Jesus. But suspicion is a conclusion that many people come to. Jesus is thought of sentimentally with excessive tenderness, sadness, or nostalgia. I realize that great sentiment can be evoked by a man like Jesus, who raised men from the dead, who healed the sick, who liberated the oppressed, opposed the sexist and racist and classist infrastructure of his day, and died for his friends and enemies, even the enemies of his who crucified him. While I understand great sentiment surrounding a man like this, sentiment in and of itself is not a reasonable conclusion to come to about Jesus, but it is the conclusion of many. Lastly, Jesus is thought of sensationally, as in the use of exciting or shocking stories or language at the expense of accuracy in order to provoke public interest or excitement. Certainly, Jesus can be treated with sensationalism. His life accounted for in the Gospels is one of immense excitement and serious shock. No doubt, portions of the life of Jesus have been used to sensationalize public interest, incite excitement, and spearhead countless causes. Put Jesus' name on anything. And while I understand thinking of Jesus sensationally, I get that, sensationalism in and of itself is not a fair conclusion to come to about him, but that's the conclusion that many people come to. I make this observation because these approaches, those three primary ways of thinking about Jesus or views of him, keep him and his way and his teaching at best arm's length and irrelevant to our actual day-to-day lives. I don't know if anybody who comes to church often is actually willing to admit that. That we come to church, we praise Jesus, we worship him, and we leave and we're like, all right, Sunday afternoon, what do we do with him now? Monday, what does he matter to my work, to my marriage, to my reality? Thinking of Jesus suspiciously, sentimentally, and sensationally are all void of the substance of Jesus' self. And thinking of him these ways keeps him from the serious consideration of that substance. So with that said, my encouragement in this series is to seriously consider Jesus' self. Not in the way of like, God is a boogeyman and you better get serious about him, but thinking about what his life means for your life, what his life means to your understanding of yourself as a man or as a woman. To consider how understanding Jesus can help you navigate your circumstances, your real reality, and meaningfully engage in your relationship. So, I'm gonna conclude my my caveat by saying this. Don't disregard him with suspicion, don't discount him with sentiment, and don't diminish him with sensationalism. That's my my caveat. Y'all dig it? All right. Now, a brief clarification. What I'm not doing what I repeat I am not doing is setting out on a quest of biblical manhood. That is what I am not doing. Is that what I'm doing? No, I'm not doing that. I think it's been done time and again by well-meaning men, I'm sure, but often those inquiries of biblical manhood lead down paths of condemning some cultural expression of what manhood has become. And then using guilt and shame as motivators to somehow meaningfully change culture to get it closer to biblical manhood. Biblical manhood is a troubling phrase in and of itself because while the Bible is full of a host of men who are at times courageous and virtuous, noble and noteworthy, as Alistair Begg says, the best of men are men at best. And ultimately, the revelation of scripture is not about how to become a better man, but how God became man for men and women, to make men and women into the sons of God. So again, just to clarify, this isn't some sort of moral map to becoming a better man. I'm not telling you, and in fact, the Bible is not telling you how to work more, And try harder, clean up your act, dust yourself off, and pull yourself up by your bootstraps to somehow become something that you are not, all the while impressing God and earning favor with him. That's not what the Bible's about. That's not what I'm going to be on about. So that's my clarification. Do y'all dig it? All right. So with that, we arrive at our first question. How does Jesus relate to power? To see quintessential examples of Jesus' relationship with power, uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles or in the City Church app to John chapter 18, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John uh, chapter 18. As we're going there, I'll provide a bit of context to where we're at. Right before this, right before what we're about to read, Jesus was praying a prayer that's been come to refer to uh, as his high priestly prayer. So if you guys are looking for some light afternoon reading, find that prayer in John 17 and knock yourself out. Jesus is well aware that he's about to be betrayed by Judas, which is where we pick up in John 18. Jesus leads his disciples to a garden that they're all familiar with, including Judas. So as we read in John 18, verse 3, here's where we pick up. Verse 3, Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. Now, this is power, right, fellas? Power in numbers, a detachment of soldiers and some officials. But get this, and I wonder if you've ever heard this before. The Greek word translated to detachment is a word, spira, which is actually a specific term for a military cohort numbering between 500 and 1,000 people. So let me read this with that in context. Judas came to the garden guiding 500 to 1,000 soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. All of those soldiers carrying torches and lanterns to light their way. In the middle of the night. And what else were they carrying? Yeah. Weapons. When you think about a soldier carrying a weapon. What kind of weapon comes to mind? Do you think about like slingshots. And pitchforks and a broomstick. Is that what comes to your mind when you think about a soldier? No. So this must have been sophisticated military grade artillery. Right? Now again I ask. This is power. Right? Fellas. A bunch of guys with weapons. Watch what happens next in verse 4. Now, before we go there, I want to remind you of the first question that we're considering. How does Jesus relate to power? Jesus, in verse 4, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and started a war. No. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him. We at this point down the timeline of history know what happened to Jesus. But Jesus knew what was going to happen to him in the next matter of hours. And he asked, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Is that odd to anyone? That's incredible. 500 to 1,000 highly trained military professionals equipped with military-grade artillery and navigation equipment draw back and fall at the mere word of a single unarmed man. Isn't that interesting? What does it mean? How can it be explained? I'm waiting for an answer because I have no idea. Okay, jokes aside, what does it mean? How can it be explained? Drawing back and falling. And again, I ask, how does Jesus relate to power? Does he engage in combat? Does he fight fire with fire? Is his strategy an eye for an eye? Does he hit his opposition where they least expect it? Does he exploit their weaknesses? Does the art of war, does he invade, occupy, Police, drone, patrol, intimidate, divide and conquer. He does none of the above. How does Jesus relate to power? Do you have any ideas in your mind about an answer to that question? How does Jesus relate to power? Do you have any thoughts? I'm gonna say this, John, don't go to it yet. I almost think this is gonna be a letdown to you guys when I say this. How does Jesus relate to power? Here's the answer The way Jesus relates to power is by plainly presenting his person. That's his relationship with power. It almost feels like a letdown. Let me say it again the way Jesus relates to power is by plainly presenting his person. He's not secretive, he's not suspicious. He's not deceptive, he's not cowardly, he's not manipulative, and he's not aggressive. And as a side note, ladies, isn't that what you actually expect of men? To be not those things? Maybe not at this point if you've dated and been with men who fell so incredibly short of this. But initially, in your heart and in your quiet convictions, didn't you hope or anticipate, or long for a man to be not secretive, not suspicious, not deceptive, not cowardly, not manipulative, and not aggressive. It's because you long for the trueness of what men were made to be. We, men and women alike, were made in the image of God. Jesus being the visible image of the invisible God is the man that all men are intended to be. Jesus is the fullness of the form of manhood. Jesus is the peak of personhood. Jesus is the whole of humanity as humanity was intended to be. Which makes him the exception to every rule of engagement that these soldiers and officials had been trained to anticipate when they went out to him. Their midnight strategy, their numbers, their weapons all indicate that they expected something very different, rather, someone very different than what they got. They certainly expected something other than, I am he. And in my estimation, that's what devastated them. That's what made them draw back and fall down. But why is that? I'm going I'm to take some creative license here, all right? I'm not saying anything about any certain group of people. I'm just getting creative. Okay. Why is that? Why did it devastate these men? These are men who enrolled in the military to make careers of combat and conquest, to rise through the ranks of war. They value power. They like power. They want power. They want to obtain power and execute power. These are the kind of men who, on the purchased intel of a backstabbing traitor, squatted up with a bunch of one another, and by the hundreds went to execute a covert mission to capture and crucify Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Let me remind you who Jesus of Nazareth is, what his reputation was at this point. He's a blue-collar carpenter who had turned a famous revolutionary, whose revolution was built on identifying with the social outcast, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, resurrecting the dead, teaching to turn the other cheek when you're struck and to give in response to being taken from, to pray for your enemy, teaching that a God who'd been treated as far away, removed and angry, was actually like a father who, at the sight of his wayward son, grabbed his clothes and ran down the road to embrace his son, kissing him, putting a ring on his finger, and partying in his honor. That's who Jesus taught God was like Jesus of Nazareth who, in fact, ran from the very power that so many men run towards. Like when the swelling crowd of 5,000 who he had just fed wanted to make him king by force. And so he ran off into the mountains away from that group of people who wanted to make him king so that he could escape them. And that's what I want you to see, that the very essence of Jesus, his gravitas, is devastating to these men. Men who possess pseudo-power at the end of a gun, and yet are so utterly powerless in the face of actual power. Power that's so palpable, it makes them draw back and fall down. Because Jesus is the actual embodiment of a power, not sustained By ciphering off of others, or manipulating the weak, or extorting the poor, or conquering and controlling anyone who opposes you. Jesus is the actual embodiment of a power so powerful that it overflows into empowerment for other people. The way Jesus relates to power is by plainly presenting his person, which devastates these guys. We'll pick up in verse 7. Again, Jesus asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. We can infer that some of the soldiers and officials had captured some of Jesus' disciples, which is why he said, let these men go, which takes us to verse 9. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those that you gave me. Again, do you see how Jesus relates to power? When he's captured, knowing his gruesome end is approaching, he protects his affiliates. He doesn't bring them down with him. His power empowers others. It doesn't destroy the people closest to him like so many powerful men. Verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, and you got to love Peter, man. If you're like an A-type dude, if you work it out, doing push-ups and stuff, you can find yourself in Peter. Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it back and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? It's important, and I'm going to step away from this text real quick. It's important that I add these two details before we finish with this scripture and move away from the first question, how does Jesus relate to power? These are details from other Gospels. The first is from Luke chapter 22, verse 51. Jesus touched Malchus' ear and healed him. Not only does Jesus protect his affiliates, he protects and restores those who oppose him. You see the power of Jesus that empowers even those who are opposed to him. And Then one other detail, uh, which we pick up in Matthew 26. Following Peter's assault of Malchus in Matthew's gospel, here's what he says. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? I read that and I was like... What does that mean? I mean, it seems like a big statement, right? That's a wow statement. But what does that actually mean? But first, think about what's at your disposal. It may be your assets, right? Physical materials and goods or connections, knowledge and skills. Do you use that which is at your disposal for your own well-being? Do you use it to increase your power, to protect your power? Think about the men in your life, right? Who you respect and revere, who you follow on Twitter and who you retweet. Think about what's at their disposal and how they use what's at their disposal. In comparison, there's one thing that Jesus says is at his disposal. It's 12 legions of angels. Let me break this down real quick. The Greek word translated to legion is legion. It's similar to the word that we discussed earlier, spira. In that, it's a military term. Uh, It's a military measurement term. A legion, follow the math here, and we're going to put it up on the screen. A legion is 6,000, okay? Jesus had at his disposal 12 legions of 6,000 angels. That's 72,000 angels. I'll continue the line of thought. In the book of Isaiah, one angel in one night killed 185,000 men. You see where I'm going with this? If one angel can kill 185,000 men, then 72,000 angels can kill 13,320,000,000 people. The population of the earth is roughly 8 billion people. The angels at Jesus' disposal, could wipe out everyone on the earth and in video game terms still have 5,312,000,000 kills remaining. Consider what was at Jesus' disposal as you consider how Jesus relates to power, specifically the power that's being perverted by a covert mission of 1,000 soldiers who came in the middle of the night to unjustly arrest him and hand him over for crucifixion. Instead of leveraging what was at his disposal, Jesus' concern is to correct the wrong thinking of his follower and to heal the pain that his follower inflicted by thinking wrong. This hints at the answer of our second question, which is, how does Jesus use power? So that's his relationship with power. How does Jesus use power? The answer is in Philippians chapter 2. You can go ahead and find that in your Bibles. Uh, or on the City Church app. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll start at the end of verse 5. We'll put it up here on the screen as well. Philippians 2 at the end of verse 5. How does Jesus use power? Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And I want to stop us real quick. Who watches the show The Office or who has ever watched The Office? Yeah, love The Office. Uh, Michael, Dwight, Pam, Jim. Okay, so you guys will be familiar with Dwight, right? He's always repping a title that was given to him, assistant to the regional manager. And what is Dwight always saying? I'm the assistant regional manager, right? And season one, episode five, Dwight and Michael getting this back and forth. Uh, Dwight says, I'm the assistant regional manager. Michael says, you're the assistant to the regional manager. Uh, Dwight says, they're the same thing. Michael says, no, they're not. It's lower. And the scene kind of changes real quick. The reason I say that is because Dwight considered a quality with Michael something to be used to his own advantage, right? And that's what all of us do. That's what men do. So, even though that's the common way for men to use power for their own advantage, let's see what Jesus does here. Again, verse 5 at the end. Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, it doesn't read Christ Jesus who was the assistant to God, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Verse 7, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of, Of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to death on a cross. This, my friends, is the reality of the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ that Jesus, the God man, chose the way of servanthood, humility, and death, emptying himself, making himself nothing, which may seem like nothing. After all, by the time Jesus was on his cross, he was homeless, he was moneyless, and by all human measures, he was powerless. So what did it really mean that he emptied himself? What did that really cost him? In contrast, I want to show you one way that Jesus was valued by another person, by someone who recognized him to be incredibly valuable. Satan, in Matthew 4 Uh, took him to a very high mountain. Satan takes Jesus to a very high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor. And he says, all this I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. That's how valuable Satan perceived Jesus to be. That's what Jesus emptied himself of. He emptied himself of his infinite value, which Satan wagered all of the kingdoms and all of the splendor of the earth on. Jesus emptied himself of all that was at his disposal, like 72,000 angels able to come to his defense. Jesus emptied himself of all of his personal rights, liberties, divine immunity, freedom. Hashtag Independence Day. Hashtag Fourth of July. Hashtag freedom. And this, loved ones, the scripture uh, oh, so counterculturally and otherly worldly referred to as the power of God, this emptying of Jesus on the cross is the power of God. first Corinthians one eighteen says, "For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, because of this incredible power, Philippians two, which we were just reading, picks up at verse nine. And declares, therefore, because of Jesus' obedience to emptying himself, pouring himself out on the cross, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue should confess. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And while that is a one day reality, For some of us, our knees aren't bowed now. Our tongues don't confess that Christ is Lord at this point. And that leads us, I think, to the third and final question, which is a reasonable question to ask. So what? Why does this matter in my life? Does it matter? So what? Well, I'm glad that you asked. If you're here with us uh, this morning and you haven't bowed your knee or confessed that Jesus is your Lord, I I want to encourage you to think about what you've heard. What a wonderful Savior, what a beautiful Lord Jesus truly is. And in seeing him as such, confess in your heart, uh, quietly with your mouth, loudly with your mouth, even silently, that Jesus is Lord. Be saved, received the gift of eternal life and abundant life here and now that Jesus offers. And then you'll find yourself in the second group of people who I'm talking to now. Those of us who already believe in Jesus, my encouragement to those of us who believe in Jesus is this. Do you see how Jesus relates to power? Do you see how Jesus uses power? Is that how you relate to power if you believe in the Lord Jesus? Is that how you use power if you believe in the Lord Jesus? If not, let me say this. And I I do feel the need to give uh, this disclaimer because I think so many people, again, use manipulation and guilt as a motivator to change, and that's not what I'm trying to do here. Those things don't produce any actual change, any real change in people's lives. But if you don't relate to power the way that Jesus relates to power, and if you don't use power like Jesus uses power, I do have to ask, why? Why? Or rather, why not? Do you see the silliness in believing in a man for eternal life and freedom from eternal condemnation and the forgiveness of your sins? To believe in a man in an eternal sense, and yet here and now the man has little to no bearing on your actual life, on your day-to-day life. Do you see the inconsistency in that? I'm not trying to guilt you if you're a believer and that's the place that you find yourself, but do you see the inconsistency in that? Can you imagine what a non-believing world looks at us and thinks if we confess faith in that Christ and yet don't align our lives with his person and his way and his teaching? I'll, I'll conclude with this uh, in a fascinating piece published by The Economist. It's an article entitled Men Adrift. The article closes with this quote. There are many ways to be a man, but not all of them are equally honorable, right? This is a secular piece. There are many ways to be a man, but not all of them are equally honorable. By what standard do we measure the way of being a man that is truly honorable? How do we determine the honorable way to be a man? Nietzsche said that the value of a man can only be measured with regard to other men, right? So in Nietzsche's mind, we can measure our value based on comparing ourselves to one another. So men, who are we measuring ourselves against? Specifically, what man in your life are you measuring yourself against as you think about your own identity? What makes you valuable? What makes you powerful? How do you relate to power? How do you use power? And this is the final reminder that I have, my conclusion. We're returning to 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, the cross of the God-man who emptied himself of everything and suffered savage beating and a brutal murder is the power of God. That's where God's power is seen. Will you pray with me? Uh, Lord, I want to make room in my own heart and in my own life uh, to not only believe in you for uh, eternal security, uh, place in heaven, union with you for all time, Uh, but God, as I do that, I want to make a place in my life to let that mean something. Men are so uh, finite and so fickle We fall so incredibly short of uh, the beautiful and devastating person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, Jesus, you invite us into your likeness, into your way, into your teaching. And God, I've gone many other ways, uh, and I found nothing down those dead-end roads. So, Lord Jesus, I want to go your way practically. I want to relate to power the way that you relate to power. I want to use power the way that you use power. Lord, won't you allow our church, uh, City Church, to be a church that does that, relates to power, and uses power as you do uh, for our good, for the good of our witness to the world that's around us, and ultimately for your glory, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name.